Well, good morning again. Uh, Let me pray for us before we uh, read and talk together. Father, we just uh, sang these ancient words together that you would give our jaded senses light. And so we ask now, as always, that you'd be happy to use this word that we're going to read together and talk about together to lead us to the word incarnate, seated with you right now, praying for people like us, that we would meet him, that we would have our jaded senses given light, starting with the preacher, meet every one of us here, no matter where we've come from, whether we're in faith or outside of faith, whether we feel close to you or far away from you, meet us and show us how much you love us in Jesus. And we prayed in his name. Amen. Well, we have uh, been reading together about the first Christians uh, from the book of Acts. And last week we talked about Peter uh, healing this man who had been disabled from birth uh, and all of the great stir that that caused in the city of Jerusalem. We didn't read about what happened next, so here's what happened next. The Sadducees, uh, which were essentially the aristocracy in Jerusalem, started to become very annoyed uh, at the apostles. And so they have this sit-down with the other power brokers of the city to talk about this pesky new movement of people who are following Jesus. And the end result of this meeting is that they tell Peter and John to just stop talking about Jesus. Uh, which, of course, Peter and John completely ignore. They keep talking about Jesus nonstop. There are even more healings. And the result of this is that all of the apostles get arrested and thrown into prison. So we're going to pick up reading in Acts uh, at their hearing the next morning before the high priest. So I'm going to read from Acts 5, verses 27 through 42. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed And came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So about a week ago, Allison and I went out to dinner, and after about 20 minutes of us having dinner together, another couple came uh, and was seated at the table right next to us. They were older than us. Um, They weren't married. And the tables in this particular place were close, so we couldn't help but overhear some of their conversation, which I confess we liked. Um, It was enjoyable to hear some of their conversation because they had that nervous, getting-to-know-each-other vibe coming off of them. Um, They had obviously just recently started seeing one another. (laughs) So pretty soon after they sat down, they dove right into the latest uh, political headlines. And it was fun uh, for us, at least, to hear them feel each other out while they were talking to make sure what they were saying was what they thought the other person would think you know, it was just the right mix of savvy, smart, and ironic detachment. And that went on for a while. Uh, and then the topic switched to religion. Pretty amazing. And just a couple minutes into that discussion of religion, this is what we heard. The guy said, when the aliens come and take over Earth, I'm going to be really embarrassed that religion still exists. Okay. When the aliens come and take over Earth, I'm going to be really embarrassed that religion still exists. I'm not making that up. I don't think I could make that up. And as the conversation went on, it became pretty clear that this man's main point of reference uh, was not religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And so my mind started racing. I wondered if he would be embarrassed about the abolition of slavery or if he would be embarrassed about the end of apartheid, or if he'd be embarrassed about things like civil rights or the establishment of public hospitals or any number of good things which are pretty impossible to imagine without the initiation and involvement of Christians. But mostly, I wondered about these aliens. (laughs) What did they look like? Where did they come from and why? And I wondered what they would feel about coming all this way and finding faithful Christians all over the world happy to be forgiven, happy to know that they are loved, and doing whatever they can with whatever they have to love God and their neighbors. Because that's what they would find. Because the church is not going anywhere. And that's not (laughs) 
because Christians are such a sterling lot of folks. That is for sure. It is because the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him at his right hand, and together they sent the Spirit to people like us. The church's longevity, its life, its vitality is thankfully based on God's power and God's faithfulness and not ours. And that's pretty much what Peter said that morning in the hearing in front of the high priest. And then teacher Gamaliel, for reasons known only to him, said, give it time and we'll see if it's from God, it will endure. And here we are. And I think in this story, Luke is not just giving us a history. He's not just telling the story of what happened that morning. I think Luke is also laying down markers for us of what faithful Christian witness looks like in a world that alternates between hostile to Christian witness and indifferent to Christian witness. And I think that's really good for people like us to think about together. So the story starts with all of the apostles being brought into the chamber of the high priest for their hearing. I have to tell you that I skipped some important things in the summary that I gave you before we read together. It's in the middle of chapter 5. You should read it later this afternoon. Um, First, one of the things that I skipped was that Luke had weighed in on the motive of the high priest and the motive of the Sadducees in arresting the apostles. And it's not complicated. It is not a complicated motive, motive at all. Luke says they were filled with jealousy. And uh, it's true. You know, they were losing popular support fairly rapidly. It's clear that the hearts and the minds of the people of Jerusalem are starting to lean towards this new movement of people who say that they follow a guy who had been crucified by the Romans two months before. That's a mess for the powers that be. And it's a mess because one of the things that the high priest and the Sadducees are supposed to do, and they're given this charge by the Roman occupiers, (laughs) is to keep order among the people, to not let crazy stuff happen. And they they were finding themselves uh, out of control. The second thing that happened was what happened early that morning of the apostles' imprisonment. Sometime near the morning, they were sprung by an angel. (laughs) And so they just quietly left the jail, went back to the temple, and did what they wanted to do there. So when the authorities gathered together that morning and summoned the prisoners, they were embarrassed to find that there were no prisoners to summon. (laughs) The chief of the guard had to go and get them and bring them back again. So things are tense all around. The authorities are feeling deeply stung because they can't even control the stuff that should be easy to control, like keeping prisoners under lock and key. So they get there. And this is what the high priest says. He, he won't even allow himself to say the name Jesus. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching And you intend to bring this man's blood on our head. 
So now it's clear that these authorities have made assumptions about the intent of Peter and the intent of the apostles, and that these assumptions are way off base. What they're assuming clearly is that this movement is an insurrection and that the apostles' long-term goal is to supplant them, to take over their power and to take over their control. It's easy to see why they might think that. Because over the last few weeks, when Peter has been telling the story of what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem, he happens to tell the whole story, not a, a sanitized version. He tells the whole story, which means that several times he has indicted them as the leaders who handed Jesus over to the Romans for execution. He's going to do it again in a minute. That's what the high priest means when he says, you intend to bring this man's blood on our head. But here's the thing, church. Peter has never, ever held himself aloof in the guilt. He has never, ever held himself aloof of what he called that crooked generation. He numbers himself in it. If you were here last week, you might remember that Peter even graciously said that the leaders and the people acted in ignorance when they handed Jesus over. They didn't even know what they were doing. But Peter knew what he was doing. Peter knew what he was doing when he denied Jesus. He did not act out of ignorance. He was Jesus' friend. And he chose to let his faith be swallowed up in fear. So the last thing that Peter's doing is self-righteously pointing fingers at people to shame them. What Peter's doing is telling the truth in love and inviting people in, inviting them to be forgiven and to be restored just like he had been forgiven, just like he had been restored. He knows something about second chances, and he knows something about grace, and he knows something about forgiveness and what that does to a person, how free it makes them. We know a thing or two about those two, don't we? And that invitation to turn, to be forgiven, to be restored, it is as open to you and me this morning as it was millennia ago when Peter spoke it. Do not let anything keep you from turning and being forgiven. Here's the other thing that the powers that be didn't get. And that is that Peter and the apostles didn't care at all about their power. Not even a little bit. The the power that the Sadducees held, the control that they held, the, the power and control that the high priest and the temple functionaries held did not mean a thing to the apostles, which is pretty amazing to consider because until very recently, it had mattered a lot to them. They wanted exactly that power. We talked about this back in January when we looked at Acts 1. And you can read basically any of the Gospels, and certainly Luke. You'll see the apostles definitely had aspirations to earthly power. They wanted it. They could taste it. But Jesus told them, you guys have it all wrong. You don't understand. You, you are not seeing clearly. Your dreams about power are not wild enough. You're going to get power for sure. But it's not going to be the, the shabby power you want You're going to have power to be my witnesses in this world. And now they have it. 
The Holy Spirit came and now they have access to and now they have communion with the power that hung the stars. And they have access to and they have communion with the power that is making everything new. And they're finally, finally aimed at a different kingdom. (laughs) So Peter tries to make this as clear as possible when he answers the high priest this way. We have to obey God rather than men. Of course we didn't listen to you. We have to obey God. Sometimes this gets called the the principle of Christian civil disobedience, right? If God tells you to do something and some power tells you not to do it, or if God tells you not to do something and some power tells you to do it, then you've got to break with whatever that power is and you've got to go with God. Yes, fine, of course. But church, I confess that I wonder if it might be more useful for people like us in places like this to see it as a principle of the proper Christian way to care about any kind of earthly power. Peter and the apostles had stopped caring about that kind of power in the best way possible. I don't mean that they disdained it. They didn't disdain it but it had lost its seductive pull over them. And they could finally see it in its right and proper place in their lives. And maybe we could benefit from taking that posture too. I mean, to put a really fine point on it, I I very much wish that the generation above mine had not worked so very hard at aligning the church with American political power It has done very little good and much harm to Christian witness. Brad East, who teaches theology at Abilene Christian University, recently wrote an essay for Comment Magazine called The Church and the Common Good. And there were two sentences in it that really struck me. This is what Professor East wrote. When the church is made an instrument of ends other than its own, however good in themselves, the result is distortion of the church's faith, of its life, of its mission. The paradox being that when the church is least focused externally in the sense of the immediate consequences of this or that public action, it most benefits the society's in which it sojourns. (laughs) When we become instruments of an end other than our own, other than God's, it is always distortion. And we become a blessing to the city, to the world in which we sojourn when we are least focused on the consequences of our public action and we just do them because they are fitting and right and beautiful and good. I think this is proven true time and time again, not just in the American church, but in the church, always, from the beginning of the church. 
We are not instruments of some shabby, shifting political power. We're not instruments of some shabby, shifting cultural power. We are instruments, church, of the power that hung the stars. We are instruments of the power that is making everything new again. And to live that way takes humility first and then courage to be able to say, we have to obey God rather than men. That's the posture that benefits the places in which we sojourn. That's the proper Christian care about earthly power in whatever form that power takes, not disdaining it, but not being seduced by it seeing it in its proper place. I think this is one of those markers that Luke is laying down about faithful Christian witness in a hostile world, in an indifferent world. So I'm pretty sure (laughs) that Peter knows those are the kind of words that might get him killed. Which is maybe why he jumps in and speaks the good news again to them, like maybe it's his last chance. You know, he's their captive, but they're his captive audience. He doesn't like to let a a crowd go to waste, so he reminds them again of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then in verse 31, he speaks about Jesus' ascension using some really striking language. He says that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. It's like now that Peter's talking about power, he he can't stop talking about power. To say that Jesus sits at God's right hand is to say that he is enthroned. It is to say that he is the real power. And he is leader and he is savior. Now that's the first time either of those two words is used to refer to Jesus in the book of Acts. Savior, of course, is the readily accessible one, and it's also the way that Peter has been talking about Jesus from the very start. Jesus is the one as Savior who steps in, who takes the blame for a guilty verdict that is not his. Jesus is the one who steps in and takes the blame for deniers like Peter. Jesus is the one who takes the hit so that guilty people can be forgiven. He does that as a savior. And Jesus is called that all over the New Testament. But this other name, leader, it's used only twice, twice in Acts and then two other times in Hebrews. It's not always clear how to translate it and our English translations reflect that confusion. I mean, it could just as easily be prince or captain or champion, or pioneer, or hero. (laughs) What Peter is saying is that Jesus is the one who is enthroned. He is the prince. He is the hero. He is the champion. To him belongs the power. To him belongs the glory. And Peter and the rest of the apostles and the first Christians are just following along behind him in their vocation to be witnesses in this world. But church, here's what's so striking about it. (laughs) What is so striking about this is the way in which Jesus is the hero and the champion and the leader. 
It's totally counter to how we usually think of those words. Jesus does this by giving up power. Jesus becomes the hero by laying aside his power, laying it down. He sets aside his power for the good of the other. He lays his power down for your good, for mine, for the good of this world. Jesus said that's how it was going to be. He said it so many times in so many parables and in so many teachings when he talked about the last being first, when he said, if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all, but nobody got it until his death and resurrection and ascension, and then they got it. And it must have been really strange for the powers, for the Sadducees, for the high priests to hear Peter talk about Jesus like that that morning. I mean, who gives up power? (laughs) Who lays aside power and takes the hit? I mean, they knew how Jesus died, like a, a common thief in the cruelest way possible. Most people with power do everything that they can to keep that power. Most people with power employ it for their own ends. But church, this is another marker. Here it is. Luke is laying it down. This is a marker of faithful Christian witness in the world. Whatever power we might have, what influence we might have, whatever sway we might have, it is given to us to be laid down for the good of our neighbors, for the good of the world that is faithful Christian witness in this world. I'm tell you what, that way of living is deeply threatening to the powers that be. And do you know why it's threatening to the powers that be? Because you can't control people like that. They're free. (laughs) And you can't use anything to control them. And so sadly and predictably, they hear Peter really clear. (laughs) And they're enraged, and they want to kill them all. And that's when Gamaliel steps in to calm things down. He's this respected teacher. He's got a lot of social capital We find out later that someone named Saul of Tarsus was one of his star pupils, which is interesting to consider. He tells the story of two other men and their movements, Theudas and Judas the Galilean. They come onto the scene, he says, and they gathered followers, uh, and then they were killed, and then their followers were scattered, and their movements faded away, both of them. These are stories that are well known to everyone who's in that room. And the point is as clear as it is pragmatic. Keep away from these men and leave them alone. Time will tell. Now, I don't know what his motives were. It could be that he was genuinely seeking the truth of this movement. That's possible. It's possible that he also was just using some political savvy. He knew if they killed the apostles, they would lose even more favor with the masses. And then with the Romans, maybe it was a little both. I don't know. But it was enough to convince those who needed convincing. They took his advice, but not without getting in their licks. They beat the apostles. 
And he said again, stop talking about Jesus. And the beating made the apostles rejoice. Not because they like being beaten, but because finally they felt worthy. They counted themselves worthy to be dishonored for the name. And I don't doubt they heard their friend's voice in their ear. They heard Jesus' voice in their ear, and it made sense like it had never made sense before, like we heard in the gospel lesson when Jesus said to them, Blessed are you when people hate you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. (laughs) And they felt the blessedness in their wounds. They felt the blessedness in their bruises. They felt the blessedness through their pain. And they rejoiced. And, of course, the command (laughs) to stop talking about Jesus was predictably ignored. In fact, every day in the temple, every day from house to house to house, they did not cease talking about Jesus. And, church, these are the last markers from this story about faithful Christian witness in a world that alternates between hostile to Christian witness and indifferent to it. A proper Christian care about earthly power. A willingness to lay down whatever power we might have for the good of the other. And a holy joy at taking it on the chin for the name of Jesus. The real enthroned power who hung the stars the real enthroned power who is making everything new again. The real enthroned power who has given people like us everything that we need to live as his witnesses in this world. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see Jesus and to believe that he has been exalted to your right hand our leader, our savior, our hero, our champion. Help us to see and to believe and to cling to him in faith. Father, do this for our good so that we can start thinking the right way about power if we don't. So that we can lay power down for the good of others if we don't. So that we can, with joy, be reviled for your name if that's what it comes to. Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of this broken world around us that you love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.